that the person of Jesus Christ is the most important reality for Christianity, and therefore believing rightly about him is absolutely crucial to preserving authentic Christianity. In other words, if you mess up on the doctrine of the rapture, or perhaps the doctrine of church government, or whether speaking in tongues is normative for this dispensation, you can still get by. But mess up in the area of Christology, and you have a real problem. It's one of the things that separates orthodoxy from a lack of orthodoxy. It's no hyperbole to say that errors with respect to the subject of the person of Jesus Christ are deal killers. One's view of Christology goes a long way towards determining whether they're orthodox, and it also goes a long way toward determining whether they're saved or not. This is crucial. Most cults, including the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and some faiths, most, most other faiths like Judaism or Islam, grossly misunderstand the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human. There is no wiggle room here. And there's no room for compromise. This is one area where there is no room for flexibility. I have a friend named Ali. He used to be a Muslim man. Really, really nice guy. He used to attend the church. I don't know if many of you remember him or not. Real nice looking fellow, real educated man, a restaurateur. And Ali attended the church for quite some time. And finally one day he took me to lunch. And I knew he was Islamic. He's one of the only openly Islamic people that I ever knew that we had come to the church. But I decided to go to lunch with him on, upon his invitation. We had the most wonderful lunch. And at the end of the lunch, he said, Bruce, I got a real problem. He said, I would love to embrace Christianity, but you know I'm Islamic. I said, but I, I know you are. And he said, it all kind of comes down to Jesus Christ. I said, yeah, it does. Now, you see, I knew his problem. Both of his parents in Tehran, in Iran, had been killed in an automobile accident. He loved his mom and his dad very, very much. But his mom and his dad were both very traditional Islamic people. And so the dilemma he has, and people have this more than you think, and we need to be sensitive about it in evangelistic con context. The dilemma that he had is, and he brought it up, Bruce, if I believe what you're saying is true, then my beloved mother and father are in hell right now. It's a legitimate concern that he had. And I said, well, that's true, Ali, but it doesn't mean you have to go there too. And I'm not trying to be flippant in any way by saying this to you, but but we do need to talk about the person of Jesus. Because, you see, in his faith, the way that he grew up, Jesus was a real person, but he wasn't even the greatest of the prophets. And he certainly wasn't God. And after a, a long and sometimes emotional and passionate discussion, he just came to a conclusion that he couldn't accept the Jesus of the Bible. And I think the reason that he couldn't accept the Jesus of the Bible was because of his parents. It wasn't logical. It wasn't reasonable. It wasn't rational. It wasn't revelational. It was emotional. Sometimes people reject Christ for emotional reasons. But there is no room for compromise. He worked for over an hour trying to figure out a way that he could fit the Islamic Jesus and make it synthesize with the Christian Jesus. And it can't be done. 
The Christian Jesus is fully human and fully God. I don't know if you're aware, but in the early, the early, earliest history of the church, I'm talking about the first century, the discussion was never whether, whether Jesus was God or not. They assumed Jesus was God. That was the revelation. That was, there was an Old Testament messianic expectation that the, that the Messiah would be divine. The first discussion was whether he was really human. Now the discussion seems to be whether he's really divine. Everybody accepts his humanity. But even back in the early church, there were challenges. There are those who would assert today that Jesus became God. Now watch the terminology. That Jesus became God at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. What is sometimes said is that the early church got together at Nicaea and they decided or they declared at that point that Jesus was God. Sometimes people like to say, and it's not a true statement in any form, but they like to say that the Roman Catholic Church invented the doctrine of the Trinity. Before 325, there was no doctrine of the Trinity. Not true. That's not actually what happened at Nicaea. There was an elder. He wasn't a bishop. He always had a little problem with the fact that nobody had ever declared him a bishop. There was an elder in Alexandria named Arius who popularized an idea that was new at its time, that Jesus was not God, that he was actually the first created being from God. He was a, the highest of all God's creation, but he wasn't God himself. Arius wouldn't even be a footnote in history if it weren't for the fact that he gained a following. Arius is said to be a fellow who was tall and thin, not very social, but a very persuasive speaker. Arius comes up with this idea, or at least popularized the idea, that Jesus wasn't God in the early 300s. Because of that, because the view was challenged that Jesus was God, and because the challenge gained traction, and that's the key thing, the issue had to be addressed. There are issues all the time in Christianity that are off the wall. People come up with views that are off the wall. Sometimes we have to address them, and sometimes it's best just to let it go, because the person has no credibility whatsoever. I remember when I was an intern for Robert Lightman, one of the exercises that he did to teach me this, about sometimes it's best just to let things go. He brought me in on a Thursday, and I was, I was an extremely busy person at the time. I was working on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. I went to Dallas Seminary on Tuesdays and Thursdays, commuted from Houston up to Dallas and back the same day. And then we had started the church, so I was pastoring on Sunday. I was, I was so busy. And he knew that. But he wanted to teach me a lesson, and he knew that in order to teach me a lesson, he had to give me an object lesson. He just knew that I wasn't going to take it any other way. So he showed me a review that he had written for a man that wrote in Florida a book about, actually it's about disrespect. And I read his review, and he, I said, okay. He said, well, here's the book, and here's my review, and here's this man's response to my view. He had written a very acerbic letter back to Dr. Leitner, didn't like his review at all. He said, what I want you to do is go home this weekend, and I said, I know you're busy, but I want you to go home this weekend, I want you to read the book, I want you to read my review, I want you to read his letter, and then I want you to come up with a response for me back to him. Now, in order to do that, you're also going to have to research him and who he is. And 
didn't have time, but I realized that this was an important thing to him, and he, I was his intern, and I was going to do the best that I could for him. Interns sh- should do that. And so I went home in between Thursday and Friday and Saturday. I read the book. I read his review. I read the guy's letter that's in response to his review. And then I wrote out on Monday before I went up there on Tuesday, I wrote out a very terse response. I thought the guy had really no point at all. He was trying to rehash some old arguments that he wasn't even rehashing them well. He had no, and I hate to say this, but he had no credentials whatsoever. He was not a scholar. He didn't pretend to be a scholar. He, he was, I'm not, this is not right. I'm not saying he was a nobody because he certainly is a somebody. But in terms of the academic community, he would have not have been a credentialed person, someone who would have been expected to be taken seriously. I, I hope you understand what I mean. I'm not trying to be unkind to you. So I took the letter back, and I laid all of them down on Dr. Lightner's desk. And my letter was, was um, a bit testic back to the fellow. I outlined all the points that he made in the book and showed him where he was just dead wrong, first in his representation of dispensationalism, and then in the passage that he uses to try to refute things, went through some exegetical issues with him. And then Dr. Lightner read it, and he said, okay, that's, that's great. This is, a, this is quite a strong letter. He said, what do you think I ought to do? I said, I think you ought not to send the letter. He said, really? Why, why wouldn't you send this letter? I said, because the guy's not really in your league. And if you address him and begin this correspondence with him, you're actually going to elevate him and his ideas into a position that they really don't deserve. I said, I think if you just ignore him, the whole thing will go away. It'll be old news in a couple of weeks. And he said, I think that's a good idea. That's what I'm going to do. And he said, in fact, I never intended to respond to him. <laughs> he said, this whole thing is to teach you a lesson, that there are times when you respond and there are times when you don't. The situation with Arianism in the early 300s had gained traction. Arius, although he was not a bishop, was a very popular figure. He was a persuasive speaker. So the early church had to address that. Some people misunderstand church councils altogether. They think church councils got together and they just declared this dogma. That's not what they did. They typically got together because somebody had challenged a particular dogma. They had to come back with whatever the orthodox view was. And that's what happened at Nicaea. Because the early church held to a view of the deity of Christ, because Arius challenged it and gained traction, the early church had to respond. In respond, they did. Over 1,800 bishops from all around the world and church leaders were invited to Nicaea, which is a small city in Turkey. How many attended this conference is not really clear. Some accounts, I don't know how they can get this, so the, the number can vary so much. Some accounts say 1,800 people attended. Other accounts say it was as few as three or 400, but it was still a fairly large conference. The attendees that came to Nicaea argued for over a month about the issue. There were, I think, 33 bishops that argued in favor of Arius's view. And there was one man that was put in charge of arguing the orthodox view, the historical view of the church, and that was a man named Athanasius. Perhaps you've heard his name before. Just remember it this way. Athanasius is the good guy at the Council of Nicaea. Arius is the one that is branded a heretic for good reason. I don't like to use that word. Sometimes people use the word heretic in a far too loose way. But Arius was a heretic because he denied a fundamental doctrine of the faith. It would be like somebody denying resurrection. 
That's a heretical view to deny resurrection. To say that I prefer a congregational form of government over a Presbyterian form of government is not heretical one way or the other. I hope you see the difference. But Christology is a key and central point. So Athanasius was the man that was appointed to lead the debate against Arius in favor of the the Orthodox view that the New Testament claimed that Jesus was God. That's the Orthodox view. Not that just the early church thought he was, but that the New Testament claimed that he was God. And when it was all over, the Council of Nicaea affirmed the view that the early church always held. I want you to see that. The the Council of Nicaea, because people are going to come to your door someday, and they're going to say, the Roman Catholic Church invented the doctrine of the Trinity. And you should be able to say, no, at Nicaea in 325, Athanasius led the debate against Arius to affirm what the early church always held. I want to equip you, not to win a debate, but perhaps to win somebody over. Nicaea affirmed what the early church had always taught. They always taught that the New Testament documents taught that Jesus was divine, that he was God. There are no passages that say that Jesus stood on the hilltop and said, I am God. But as we'll see in a few moments when we go through some of these passages, it's very clear that the New Testament writers considered him to be God. And it's also very clear that he considered himself to be God. I'll show you some of the passages in a moment. It's interesting, though, that we're not totally dependent upon early church records for the fact that the early church held to the deity of Christ. We can look at records that are extra-biblical, records that have nothing to do with Christianity at all. Anti-Christian writers in the first couple of centuries actually ridiculed Christians for worshiping a man as God. Celsus, who was a Roman philosopher that wrote in the second century, he said this, listen carefully, He said, now, if the Christians worshipped only one God, they might have reason on their side. But as a matter of fact, they worship a man who appeared only recently. They do not consider what they're doing to be a breach of monotheism. Rather, they think that it's perfectly consistent to worship the great God and to worship his servant as God. Remember, this is an anti-Christian writer talking about Christians. That last sentence again. They think it's perfectly consistent to worship the great God and to worship his servant as God. And their worship of this Jesus is the more outrageous because they refuse to listen to any talk about God, the Father of all, unless it includes some reference to Jesus. Tell them that Jesus, the author of Christian insurrection, was not his son and they will not listen to you. And when they call him son of God... They are not really paying homage to God. Rather, they are attempting to exalt Jesus to the heights. This is an extra-biblical reference by an anti-Christian author speaking about 1st and 2nd century Christians and their worship of Jesus as God. What we have here is an opponent, a Roman opponent of Christianity, providing evidence that the idea expressed at Nicaea and later councils, was what the early church held. And by that I mean that the early church, after studying thoroughly the New Testament documents, came to the conclusion that Jesus was fully God and that he was fully human. At this point, I want to introduce a term, hypostatic union, H-Y-P-O-S-T-A-T-I-C, 
union, hypostatic union. This is a very important theological word. The doctrine of the hypostatic union was first set forth officially at a church council that happened about 100 years after Nicaea at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 A.D. It concerns the union of the two natures of deity and humanity in the person of Christ. It can be stated as follows. Now, I'm going to give you first the technical Chalcedon definition of the hypostatic union, and then I'm going to give you a much easier, simple way of remembering it. This is Chalcedon's definition. In the incarnation of the Son of God, our human nature was inseparably united forever with the divine nature in one person of Jesus Christ. Yet, with the two natures remaining distinct, whole and unchanged, without mixture or confusion, so that the one person, Jesus Christ, is truly God and truly man. If that's too much for you to to memorize, and probably is, memorize this one. Jesus Christ is undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. We spoke last time about the doctrine of the Trinity, and this, of course, is a related issue. The doctrine of the Trinity asserts that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all equally God. They're not three modes of expression of one God, but they're three distinct persons with identical essence or identical infinite perfection. In the scriptures, the deity of the Father is assumed. The deity of the Son is argued for, and the deity of the Holy Spirit is inferred. I'll say that one more time. In the scriptures, the deity of the Father is assumed. The deity of the Son is argued for. And the deity of the Holy Spirit is inferred. We'll talk about the deity of the Holy Spirit in a later lesson when we do a study on pneumatology. So what does the scripture say about the deity of Christ? It's not my purpose here to cover every passage that theologians use to affirm this doctrine, but I just want to cover a few. And if you have your Bibles, this is one of those times where we're going to turn to several different passages. Jesus, when he was on earth, in John chapter 5, verse 23, made this statement. All men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. Another way of putting that, all men should worship the Son, even as they worship the Father. If I should say to you tonight, because I'm God's representative speaking to you tonight, you should honor me in the same way that you honor God. I would hope that a couple hands would go up, even though you're kind and you don't typically interrupt, but I would hope a couple hands would go up. Could you say that again? So I said, okay, I'll be happy to say that again. Let me put it another way. Since I'm God's representative here tonight, and by that I just mean I'm teaching the word to you, you should worship me in the same way that you worship the Father. If I was to say that, I hope the room would be empty within the next few minutes. That would be blasphemy of the highest order, unless I was God. That's the only way that I should say that you should worship me or you should honor me in the same way that you do God. Otherwise, it's blasphemy by definition. To put oneself on a par with God is blasphemy by definition. 
It amazes me how people say that the Bible never says that Jesus was God, never even implies that Jesus was God. Think back to his trials and his crucifixions. In the Jewish trials, he was convicted for blasphemy because he made himself out to be God. The Jews who pronounced him guilty certainly understood what he was claiming. They did, even if modern, some modern people don't. The Roman charge was a bit different. They had to switch it over to insurrection by the time it got to the Roman charge. But the Jewish charge was that he claimed to be God. Anybody that would say, worship me if they're not co-equal and co-eternal with the Father is committing blasphemy. So this whole idea that Jesus was just a good man, that he was a nice teacher that should be emulated, goes right out the window. If Jesus wasn't co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, it would have been blasphemy for him to say that. And he would not have been a good man. And he should not be worshipped. Probably the most straightforward verse that speaks of Christ's deity comes in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, the Logos, the eternal Logos. In order to understand who that is, you've got to move over to John chapter 1, verse 14. And read this verse. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's verse 14 of John chapter 1 that lets us know that John chapter 1, verse 1, the term the Word is actually referring to Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Every translation that I know of translates it exactly that way, except for one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, you can't get any more clear than that if you just take the words to mean what they say. There's one translation I know of that doesn't translate that way. It is called the New World Translation. It's the translation that the Jehovah's Witnesses did. I think the Watchtower Society published it some time ago. They say since there's no definite article, a definite article is... is like the word the, is since there's no definite article in front of theos there, that that should rightly be translated a God. They would translate it this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, little g, whatever that means. And they will argue, therefore, that John was not affirming that Jesus was God because he didn't use a definite article there. The problems with that are multitudes. One of them is it's bad grammar to assert that anyway. But it's very interesting, and I'm not going to take the time to do it tonight, but we can perhaps at a later time, maybe in a different setting. But if you take the New World Translation of the New Testament in the Gospel of John, and you look through the first chapter, and you take every time that that same construction occurs, the word theos without a definite article, and it occurs quite a few times, every other time in John chapter 1 when that construction occurs, the New World Translation translates it with a capital G. Every other time. The only time they pick to translate it with a little g, based upon grammatical concerns, is this time. Now, if you got them two by two, and I have done that, and I pointed out to them when they came by my house at one point, I showed them every time in their Bible and every time in the Greek New Testament and every time in my Bible, where... My Bible is always capital G. Their Bible is always capital G, except for uh, John 1.1. 1, 1. 
And I showed him the Greek text. Each of those times, it doesn't have a definite article. I said to the younger one, I said, does that make sense to you? I wonder why this is the only time that they translate it that way. Does that bother you at all? It's just a question. The last time I did that, a fellow that was sitting there said, well, I'm not a Greek scholar. And I said, well, I'm, I know. I'm not either, although I've had significant Greek background. I was actually, before I went to seminary, I was at University of Houston in the classical Greek department there at that time. And he said, well, I'll tell you what. We've got a Greek scholar, too. And I'm going to bring him back. I said, bring him back. I would love to talk to him. And they brought him back, and he wasn't a Greek scholar. He had taken a semester or two of Greek. And, and I just told him the same thing. I said, does that bother you? Does it bother you that that's the only place that that's done in this immediate context? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1. 1, 1. Very plain text. But that's not the only one, of course. John 20, 28. Later on, after eight days, his disciples were again inside. This is post-resurrection. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, stood in their midst and said, Peace to you. And he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Verse 28. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord... And my God. You know how our Jehovah's Witness friends get around that one? My Lord and my God. Almost like it's a vocative of some sort. You know, oh, my God. No, that's not what's going on. He's calling Jesus his Lord and his master, his God. Someone who's worthy to be worshipped. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. Romans 9, 5. For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. Who is, over all, the eternally blessed God? Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, the morphe of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Very difficult phrase to translate, but that's, that's not bad. Or did not consider equality with God a thing to be seized and grasped. There are many different ways that people have translated it. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So instead of being in the form of God, he came in the likeness of men. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that, we might redeem, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Are you starting to see why people who want to deny the deity of Christ have to deny the reliability of the New Testament documents. If you get into the documents themselves, it's there. First John chapter 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, speaking of Jesus, this next phrase, this is the true God and eternal life. A couple more. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. But to the Son, he says, this is Father speaking to Son. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, 
is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. God the Father calls God the Son God. Those are just some passages that theologians use to point out that the Bible does call Jesus God. But the Bible also ascribes names or titles to Christ that are divine. For example, in Isaiah chapter 9-6, which is a passage written 700 years before Jesus was born, but speaking about the coming Messiah, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's of the Messiah. I mentioned a moment ago that the Jews had an expectation that the Messiah would be divine. This is one of those passages that they would have come to. They didn't understand it. I'm not saying in the Old Testament they would have come anywhere close to understanding the hypostatic union, as I mentioned, spoke to you a minute ago. But they knew in some way the Messiah would be divine. This is one of those passages. Isaiah 40, verse 3, again speaking of the Messiah, the voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 through 6. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called. Now, the, the he is the branch, the one who's coming. Yahweh, our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. In Joel chapter 2, verse 32, comparing it to Acts chapter 2, verse 21, the text says this, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For in Mount Zion and Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. And the Lord has said, Among the remnant whom the Lord calls. And finally, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you might ought to know how to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth, and without controversy is the great mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. God was manifested in the flesh. There's one other line of argumentation that I'd like to just present to you briefly, and then we'll close this tonight. And we've already talked about the fact that the early church looked at these documents. They held that Jesus was God. We looked at some of the passages themselves, and I think that you can see what they were seeing. But also, we have divine attributes, infinite perfections, that we know are perfections of God that are also ascribed to Jesus. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, the text says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who was, who is and was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, you may be scratching your head right now saying, how is that ascribing a divine attribute to God? The attribute that it ascribes is eternality. Eternality. Again, the, the text says, when this is Jesus speaking, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Interesting thing is, the Greeks really had no numeral zero. We do, but that wasn't a concept that they had developed. For them to express something that had no beginning or end, they would have had to say the first and the last. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter. 
I learned that in seminary, but I'll tell you what, I learned it first before I ever got to seminary. It was from an agnostic Jew at the University of Houston, Dora Parks, the Oxford-trained Greek scholar. She had no dog in this fight at all. But she's the first one that taught me that the Greeks had no number for, had no numeral for zero, and so therefore Alpha and Omega would indicate something that's timely. And then here we find it in the Bible as well. Interesting. Revelation chapter 22, verse 13 says, And behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, repeating what has been said before. So we see eternality ascribed to Jesus. We also see omnipresence. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, a very popular passage, grossly misapplied, I'm afraid, sometimes. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on anything on earth, considering that they ask, it will be done for them in my, for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or more are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Understanding that there are Christians all over the world, that there are people, two or three gathered in Houston and in Dallas and in New York and in Shanghai and in Zurich and many other places in order for God to, or Jesus to be able to say that he would have to be omnipresent. John 3.13, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. That was spoken in John 3.13 when Jesus was on earth. So he is omnipresent. He's also omniscient. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. John chapter 2, verses 24 through 25. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of men, for he knew what was in man. If I was to say, I know exactly what you're thinking right now. Since the guy that I'm pointing to, I, I know pretty well, and I know facial expressions. I may have a decent idea what he's thinking because I know him well. But for me to say I know exactly what you're thinking right now, that'd be a little presumptuous, wouldn't it? I know our wives do that. My husband's good at the wives. But we're not talking about that relationship. But Jesus said, I know exactly what you're thinking. In order to know exactly what they were thinking, he'd have to be omniscient to be able to read their thoughts. Omniscience is ascribed to Jesus. It's also ascribed in John chapter 21, verse 17. He said to them the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus is also said to be omnipotent. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able to subdue even all things to himself. The idea that that creative work demands omnipotence. Same kind of idea in John chapter 1, verse 1, and Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. The creative work of Jesus demands omnipotence. John chapter 1 also tells us that Jesus is the agent of the Trinity that actually created. That demands omnipotence. And finally, I'll leave you with this one, immutability, which is one of God's infinite perfections. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In his essential being, in his ontology, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We could spend literally weeks and weeks on this subject, but I wanted to give you an overview of one of the most important issues in Christianity. 
For without a proper view of who Jesus was, he is undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. Without a proper understanding of who Jesus was, we will not be able to have a proper understanding of any other theological system. You get it wrong on Christology, and you have made